Today, we're going to start the session with a discussion with Zane Jaffer, partner at Bluefield Capital. I have known Zane for a while. He was in our Entrepreneur Journey series as well. You may have already read that story. Zane, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Good to be on again. Zane, uh, tell us a bit about your, um, I guess we'll focus today's work primarily on the investing activity that you have recently started. But if you want to set some context for people about your fascinating entrepreneurial background, that would be great. Sure. I would call myself an entrepreneur in terms of, you know, as soon as I discovered computers, I've started to mess around and code and design things. So I've always been at it, trying to build things. And sometimes it's worked out right most of the time it doesn't it fails but I've, I've had you know um a lot of attempts and all you need is to be lucky once and it can you know change your life completely so i had a big exit it was 780 million dollars back in 2019 uh where i started an advertising tech company and after that which sort of has seen me transition from being a, a founder operator into more of a capital allocator or vc I set up my family office where I started making investments, and then I decided to professionalize that. And uh, I joined a, a fund called Bluefield Capital, and I set up a venture capital fund. Our focus is more unique because we invest in prop tech startups. So these are startups that target the real estate sector. And why uh, did you choose this sector? What in your background or in your history leads up to this choice? You know, I'd say it's envy, right? Or jealousy. As a as a founder, your entire net worth is tied up in your one illiquid startup stock. And it's a crazy journey. Sometimes you just want stability. You know, it takes a toll on you when, when your net worth fluctuates like that and you could lose your entire, you know, not even life savings, your investors' money, right? When you raise tens of millions of dollars from investors, it's scary. So I saw on the other side, you've got people making money in real estate and Frankly, they're not doing much. They're yeah. leveraging up. They're getting great terms. They're getting cash flow. I wasn't even taking the salary for so many years. So it was very tough seeing, you know, other people make really good returns. Take their salary. I was like, I want a piece of that. But, you know, here I am, no salary, you know, <laughs> banking with investor capital, trying to grow something big. And I also saw the returns. And the returns are amazing in real estate. And it feels like you don't have to do much. Things just keep appreciating. So I really wanted to get into that. And I felt that once you reach a certain level of wealth, real estate becomes a core part of the portfolio that you have. You know, you'll have stocks, you'll have bonds, you'll have alternatives, such as crypto and startups, venture capital, but also real estate. And I also realized a lot of people seem to be making money in real estate. And I've got to tell you, now that I'm on the other side where we're buying real estate, you make money because it's so broken. 50% of the people don't know what they're doing, which is why it's kind of easy to make money, right? But also a lot of information asymmetry and the market seems really ripe where technology can come in, can create transparency, can automate a lot of processes. It's just to use stereotypes, a lot of old white money, at least in America. And when, mm -hmm. you, have a, when you have a situation like that, it's exciting because people think the old school way is a mentality of don't fix it if it ain't broken. And I just thought to myself, okay, one of the world's largest asset classes, hundreds of trillions of dollars in real estate, clearly can be run more efficiently. And so I just thought, massive opportunity. 
ultimately i thought i want to start a company in this category but to start with let me let me be a vc for a while let me learn the dynamics of the industry and from that you know i'll figure out where to go next and i thought we're in a unique position because i'm buying real estate via bluefoot bluefoot has billions of dollars worth of real estate in its portfolio now we have a lot of multi-family apartments hospitality assets which means hotels We have senior care facilities, we have industrial warehouses, we're doing construction. And so whilst I'm there, when I'm buying real estate, I thought, what a great platform to be a strategic investor and also set up a venture capital fund, you know, and um, it's it sort of, um, I, I sort of felt, and you, you know, you, this is probably my founder mindset when it comes to VC. When you start a company, you want to find a niche. You don't want to go after like something everyone's doing. You want to find a really, really, you know, niche area where you feel like you've got skills and expertise that can match it. So my thesis was when you look at the venture ecosystem, you've got these very large generalist funds that have an unfair advantage against all other funds. They can deploy capital at immense amounts. The cost of capital is, is lower. They've got huge amounts of capital under management can be broad sector players and they can afford to come in later stage. Normal VCs are getting crushed under that mentality. Mm -hmm. so if that's one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum, you have niche players, players that are either geographically focused or sector focused yeah. or size focused, like pre-seed accelerator is size focused, right? Yeah. Or we only do pre-series A or we do secondary that size, but that's still not enough. So then you either become the local person where I invest in everything in, you know, Utah, Salt Lake City, where I invest in, you know, only Silicon Valley startups, or it's sector focused like we are, where we only invest in real estate focused startups and at the seed and early seed. So that was my thesis that we come into the venture game and have an unfair advantage. And it's an unfair advantage also, not just because we're sector focused and stage focused, but we have real estate in our portfolio. So theoretically, we can test startup, we can run pilots, we can get superior due diligence. I kid you not, I've seen VCs in the prop tech ecosystem get pitched a, I don't know, a retail concept or an apartment concept. And what do they do? They call their um, residential broker who bought their $50 million home in uh, Atherton. And they ask the residential broker, what do you think of this idea? Those VCs, frankly, I mean, not all VCs, uh, there are some amazing VCs in the sector, but when you have, when you have so much sort of generality, you're not going to be able to do better. You're not going to, be able to do superior due diligence usually, you know? So I felt we've got a, we've got an edge there. Okay. So let's focus on the prop tech part of your work. And you said you're doing what pre-seed and seed in, in that sector. Exactly. Yes. Okay. And, and is it all? United States, some specific part of the United States, what's the geographical boundary of this? We try to stay focused on the US markets, but we are also open and have done many companies, maybe one third of our portfolio now are companies who plan to expand to the US, or they may be based anywhere in the world, but they just happen to have US customers. And you know, it's a key strategic market for them. Ideally, the US is the top focus though, or yeah. is going to become the major revenue driver. Okay, so now I'm going to double click down on prop tech and what, how do you analyze the prop tech trends? What are the key trends? What are the key uh, developments in the market? So give us like a little 
primer on PropTech? So much opportunity. I just, look, when I started my company back when apps were taking off, you know, as a founder, I looked at maybe five different areas and I had to pick one. And I kid you not, every single one of those five areas resulted in multiple unicorns. Even the top five companies in each of these five categories became unicorns. When I looked at real estate and prop tech, there were like 50 categories. So to me, it was like, wow, what a great time to be entering the industry. Because even if you're not the number one player in a part of prop tech, the market is so large that it can support multi you know, billion dollar outcomes. When you try to analyze the prop tech ecosystem, there's a few ways to do it. One is based on workflow, where you look at the stages of work that's required in a transaction. The other way to look at it is by dividing into asset classes, and you can sort of apply this matrix structure. So I'll give you an example. Let's start with uh, the easy one by asset classes, okay? You can just simply take a map of the real estate ecosystem, and you can say, there is residential, which is the largest segment, and that's driven by consumers primarily, and it's got an ecosystem around it. But you also have commercial real estate investment, and within commercial real estate investment, you have multifamily apartments. And mm -hmm. even within multifamily apartments, you have Class A luxury high-rise skyscrapers. You have workforce housing where you have Section 8, and I'm using American terminology here, but mm -hmm. the you know, equivalent of that is you know, where it's supported by the government and subsidized, and it's low income. And you can zoom out again, and you can do the same for hotels. You can do the same for senior care facilities, industrial, or alternative real estate, or government real estate. So that's one way to dissect the prop tech ecosystem, to find startups that are focused on what I would say is a niche, but conveniently a multi-billion or multi-hundred billion dollar niche, you know? Mm -hmm. The other way to look at it is based on flow. And again, you can apply this matrix to any one of these individual sub areas. So I'll give you the example of a workflow for a company like ourselves. Newfield mm -hmm. primarily has, as I mentioned, billions of dollars of real estate in its portfolio. Here's the workflow. Number one, you need to identify assets. Mm -hmm. How do we identify assets today? Word of mouth. And there is an amazing opportunity to think about different startups that can help with the identification of assets. Then you underwrite assets. How do you do it today? You use spreadsheets and you use your gut. It, literally, it's your gut. You know, you see so many real estate deals where eventually it's like comparing shoes, right? Oh, this, this feels like a good place. You know, I feel really good about this. Let's go in and buy it. I mean, technology definitely can be used there and AI can be used there, right? Now you've um, looked at real estate, you've identified it, you've done the underwriting process and analysis and there's brokers involved there too, sometimes, okay? Then you think about how do I actually, how do I actually manage this? And that's where you get operations. And within operations, you have things like property management. Mm -hmm. That means collecting rents. Mm -hmm. That means undergoing renovation projects. It might be construction and renovation, which are huge areas for disruption, right? So I'm zooming out now, right? So you've got management of the asset and evaluation analysis. And then what you have ultimately is the disposition of the asset. How do you sell the asset? The buy side, the sell side, the transaction side. And so that's an example of a workflow-based approach. And when we started out with creating this venture fund, we thought, let's try to be more efficient in our workflow processes. Because, you know, ultimately we're a strategic investor. And when you come across a strategic investor, they look at the world differently than a traditional venture capitalist. What I would say is that as time has evolved, um, our view has evolved too.
where mm -hmm. we're not going to be able to run pilots with every company that we want to work with. By the time I finish running a pilot with a startup in our portfolio of, you know, hotels, for example, they've already like got so much traction, they've probably raised the next round of financing. So we now think more like uh, generic VCs where it's based on broader trends. But we do like to find startups where there are synergies with our own real estate portfolio. Mm -hmm. Now, um, as you are looking at this space, what is the scope and scale of the number of startups operating in North America, let's say in, in the US? What, how many startups are operating in the prop tech space? I saw about 500 startups last year, and that's just through what I tracked in my CRM. Mm -hmm. And there are thousands of startups. These are startups that were actively raising capital. So the number is mind boggling. Um, but of course, I think with any industry, you know, there'll be a lot of players, only a few will make it. So the number is enormous. I don't know what the actual number is, but PropTech is becoming uh, a big segment. PropTech actually evolved. Um, I would say it was a niche segment that was the intersection of FinTech and maybe marketplaces and potentially on demand. Um, the economy and also construction, which is an even smaller niche. PropTech is now standing out as its own niche. Most of the venture dollars that have been deployed over the last few years have gone into fintech. And mm -hmm. I think now that fintech is becoming very saturated, and I don't mean saturated as in opportunities, I just mean there's a lot of dollars chasing fintech, right? PropTech, there's a lot of dollars chasing fintech. Right. So PropTech, I think, now needs to be broken out of fintech and needs a specialist. Uh, perspective. And even within PropTech, you get specialist funds that are dealing with these different segments. Look, the answer is, I don't know how many startups are, but there are lots of startups, you know, and I'm, there's no shortage of deal flow on the VC side, for sure. Yeah. No, I, I mean, we've seen a couple of uh, PropTech startups within our portfolio. So um, one in augmented reality and one in uh, marketplaces. So we have uh, these companies in the portfolio right now. So yeah, we are seeing PropTech. Now, let's do a couple of case studies of companies that you have invested in in PropTech. And as you're talking about them, both the, I'm sure you're excited about the value, uh, about the value proposition and so forth, but I also want to understand how they came to you, in what shape they came to you, and what did you see in them that drew your attention sufficiently to want you to write checks? Yeah, so we partner a lot with um, early stage accelerators and incubators. Mm -hmm. There seems to be this gap still at the pre-seed and almost at seed stage and definitely for a while pre-series A. And so we came across a startup called stake.rent. Mm -hmm. And I can't disclose confidential numbers, but let's say it's one of the best investments we've ever made, right? And stake.rent was founded by a guy called Roland Hobbs. He previously had run a few startups, which we like. He was very UX and design focused. And he had designed some of the loyalty programs for some of the world's largest brands. I don't want to get the brands wrong, but I think within that were names or similar names like Chase, United Airlines, you know, some of the Marriott or some of the largest hotels in the world, right? And he felt that renters are not really treated with much respect. There's no such thing as a loyalty program for renters. Mm -hmm. You know, you have loyalty programs for guests, but why don't you have loyalty programs for the long-term renter? It was a really unique concept. I liked it. And so I went to the demo day 
of this accelerator, I think it was uh, Shadow Ventures, I think, what might have been the accelerator that, uh, you know, was, was showcasing states. I tuned in. It was like a five or 10 minute pitch, which is very difficult, right? But from that, I, I looked at maybe 10 companies and I thought, Stake seems really interesting. And I like the founder's passion, UX background. He wants to create this loyalty program, whatever that means, right? Okay. You've got to understand the concept. Like when the founder comes up with a, a term like that, you don't want to dismiss it. You want to try to understand the head of the founder. What is the founder seeing that I'm not seeing? So that got me excited. Um, talk to the founder and he tells me, look, you know, you should reward renters for doing actions like paying rent on time. I'm like, okay, why? Well, if they pay their rent on time, then you're not going to have delinquency issues. You're not going to have, you know, through COVID, for example, lots of people weren't able to pay their rent. Yeah. Relying on government assistance. And sometimes when you run a property, you give a concession. A concession means move in now and you get one month free rent. And he's like, don't do stupid things like that. Instead, say to the renter, if you sign up now, we'll give you $200 in your pocket. I think this is a really interesting way of looking at things. And so as I talk to Roland, I think to myself, okay, he's saying this, but this is really just an idea. How do we test this out? And so we uh, own real estate conveniently. And so what do I do? I call up some of the uh, property managers who manage our real estate and we say, hey, look, I got this crazy guy rolling with some crazy ideas. Can you take a meeting with him? Um, I take a meeting, they take meetings with him. And one of my property managers come back and says, oh my God, this is the coolest thing we've ever seen. We're rolling, out, we're rolling it out in your portfolio. And I'm also rolling it out in like other portfolios that we know of. I'm like, whoa. Now, for founders, you need to appreciate something, okay? When you're a strategic yeah, yeah. investor, <laughs> when you're a strategic investor or strategic VC, right? You're really looking for a strategic synergy with, you know, whether you're a telco company, whether you're a real estate company, if your product is going to be used in my portfolio, I sort of have no choice but to invest, mm -hmm. right? It, rationality goes out the window. I don't want to feel like, wow, I opened up a door for this startup. They're now being used in my portfolio and I missed out on the opportunity to invest. Logic goes out the window, right? So A, I'm like hooked now. I'm like, oh my God. This is exciting, you know, my, my property manager is using this and we're, we're actually producing traction for the startup. You know, uh, I don't remember the actual amount of you know, potential traction, but it was significant, right? Pre-seed startup, we become a major pilot customer. Yeah. We have to invest now, right? So we invested in the company. Um, and that startup has now been executing at lightning pace and just, you know, in the space of, I think, one year as of this podcast, they've grown their revenues 30x, okay? Uh we, we didn't expect that. And you're talking multi-million dollar revenues from a startup that is just pre-seed. They've launched a debit card for renters. They've launched like a current account for renters. They've, they've suddenly become this platform that is not just providing rental, uh, not just providing fintech products for the underbanked segment. Your underbanked segment is renters. Renters have a net worth of $6,300. These aren't people you can easily, you know, bank very easily. You can't sell products to. Turns out, I think about 8% of their users have never even had a bank account before. So now so they're doing low income housing, you're saying? Yeah, low income housing. I mean, they can do high income, not high income, like, you know, average rent. But a lot of what they do is lower income, affordable housing. And there isn't a solution for this. I just find out from them, there's a multi-hundred million dollar fund that's being set up to go buy real estate and to offer stake rewards to users. Stake has become, ESG is a buzzword. That means 
uh, like environment, social and governance, right? Mm -hmm. Steak is becoming the S in that, the social part. You know, mm -hmm. we tick a box, we buy real estate and we do low income stuff and we give steak as a differentiator. I've gone to some of my properties that use steak and I'm hearing from my managers, we're able to charge higher rents than other companies around us just because we offer steak and consumers love it. It's like a bank account for renters. So that's just one case study, but that's sort of a journey of how that came along to be, you know? And then and, and it's it's it. like that, what check size do you write? Oh, I wish we put way much more money to this company. We, we, we put up overall in this company, we put $750,000. Um, we started with like a 300K check. Uh. And we, we followed on at 450K, which is sort of how our fund operates. Um, and sometimes when we're excited, we'll put SPVs together. We could be a million dollar plus total check size in the company between seed stage and maybe follow on stage. Okay. Um, so that, that's sort of where we play. And if so it's three seed, we might just do a hundred K. Okay. Yeah. What, uh, what else you're excited about? What else you've invested in? Let's do another case study. This was a wonderful case study. So I, I think the. The fact that you're able to do pre-seed investment and immediately bring customers into a deal is nothing could be better than that for the entrepreneur. That, that's what I felt. I thought, why try to be another VC trying to be a journalist competing with Andreessen Horowitz and Sequoia and all these others? Um, I thought, do I do a venture studio? No, let, 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 let me actually set up a venture fund within a real estate company, you know, so agreed. I, I do think we offer good value and it's been proven and it helps us too, you know, it improves our revenues. I'll give you another case study and I'll give you sort of, this is like, just such a word as anti-case study, okay? Um, sometimes this shows you that VCs have no idea what they're doing. They come up with all these criterias and when the rubber meets the road, everything gets thrown out the window. This is an investment I made before I set up my VC fund. Uh, and I'm telling you this because sometimes we don't know what we do. We get lucky, okay? Uh, and really founder, founder strength is all that matters. We have a rule in our VC fund. We only do, um, we only do like pre-seed and seed stage and pre-series A. So mm -hmm. not late stage, right? Late stage is like, I would even say where we operate north of $20 million valuations. For us, that, that seems late stage. I like... I like the five to $15 million valuation range. And we don't like hardware. This is my rule, okay? Yeah. Now I can share these numbers because these numbers are public. It, I made a personal investment in a startup called Boxable, which is like prefab modular homes. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have any criteria except talking to this founder, he's just, just so much passion, so much excitement. He's trying to build like the Tesla for homes. I invested around a 40 to $50 million valuation Okay. We looked at it at my VC fund and we passed on it because it was too late stage and it had hardware. Absolutely very easy pass. Yeah. Okay. And our thesis is if you invest early stage, you'll get insane hundred X returns. Um, this startup has been crushing it like boxable and their most recent round was at 3.3 billion. And I only invested 18 months ago. It's been a 70 X plus return for me. Uh -huh. I didn't think, you know, like talk about FOMO. As a VC fund, we passed on a late stage company because it has hardware. We passed on it because we have to have a focus and we didn't believe you'd get good returns. How wrong were we? Right? Yeah. The strength of the founder is the only thing that mattered and their passion. And so I got lucky like as a personal angel, right? In this investment, 18 months, that 70 X type of paper return is great, but it just shows you like 
the but founder fit but is I, I actually think that your uh, your criteria for your fund is still correct because yes. you got lucky with possible you could not have got lucky also very easily and uh, and I think for a smaller fund uh, early stage fund trying to play that late stage game doesn't always pan out it doesn't and Simona, you're right too. And maybe for founders, you might appreciate this perspective. When I'm making an angel investment, I just want to feel good and I don't want to do too much work on it really, right? And I'll just write the check. As a VC fund, you have to go to LPs. Yes. You have to get money from them. And they're going to ask you, what's your strategy? Why are you different? So you have to invest in thesis, yes. Yeah. So you have to say, we only invest in these types of companies. Here's our model. Here's the stage. Here's the valuation. Here's the equity ownership we go for. If we had invested in Boxable, at that point in time, it would have been a stupid decision because we can all agree on this. Whoever's listened to this will definitely agree. It's much easier in theory to see a hundred X return when you're investing at a $5 million valuation, right? Right. You are at a $50 million valuation, just statistically speaking. Absolutely. The law of small numbers and baselines. So yeah, we, we, we would have, we, it's like stories of, um, some companies, and this happens today, my God, some companies are putting their treasury in Bitcoin, which is really, I appreciate it, but that's not what your shareholders are paying you to do, right? When I ran my company, I really felt like we should just take all our money, cash money we have. My company did really well. It's profitable. We, at one point, we had like 100 million plus in our bank account. We're thinking, where do we park it? And I was like, can we just go put it in some Facebook call options? <laughs> Theoretically, my company would have made billions of dollars if I did that, right? But I would have been fired as a CEO because we are not a hedge fund. My job is to run a company, company. to build a startup. In the same way, you have to have a focus. And if you go out of that focus, you're breaching your fiduciary duties. Yes. You're doing things that do not, um, I don't know how you describe it. It's, it's, you know, it's- Do you know what, what you're describing then is, some of it is you're, you're describing it in terms of fiduciary duties and you're- yeah to your limited partners and so forth. But if you translate that same thinking to entrepreneurs, you have to focus. Focus is a good yeah. thing, you know, not having focus, not having any, you know, organizing principle in your thinking and how you want to go about building companies doesn't build good companies. Yeah, and you need to set expectations too, and you need to sort of deliver on what you say. If, if your founders, if your investors are saying, look, we back you, you do whatever you want, just swing from the fences, you know, then swing on the fences. But if you're saying I'm going to build X, unless you update them and you give them a really good plan, you're, you're sort of, my view is return the money back. If your pivot isn't working, return the money back. Unless your investors are on board with the new pivot. You know? the new pivot yes, exactly. We do a lot of pivots, but investors have to be on board with the pivots. Zane, it's a pleasure. It was a very, very entertaining and educational conversation. So I'm sure everybody enjoyed it. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Bye.